like you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses. If you'd follow along as I read, please. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living she's joined to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve a newness of the Spirit and not an oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this is the commandment which was to result in life, and this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Remember last week, as we began to look ahead into Romans chapter 7, I told you that there were some habits that need to be broken in our lives in order for us to truly be able to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And as we consider where we are in the book of Romans, I just want to remind you briefly this morning of how the Apostle Paul is explaining to us that the cross is the remedy for all of the problems that we experience related to sin and related to living a life that is pleasing to God and beginning to look Christ-like in our behavior. And the first application of the cross to our lives is the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary in order to cleanse us from our sin history, and in fact from all acts of sin. Paul explains that to us in the first part of Romans, that The blood of Jesus Christ is the solution for our history of sins and for any sinning that we might do. It is the blood that cleanses us from sin 
and enables us to stand before God in a right relationship. But then Paul goes on to say that God has not only dealt with our sin history, but he also deals with our sin nature, that thing in us that promotes our sinful behavior. Because we have a nature that is in rebellion to God, a fleshly nature, a carnal nature, that has to be dealt with. And last week, as I explained, there are, there are habits that need to be broken in our lives, even when we realize we have been freed from that sin nature. Because according to the scripture, we were placed in Jesus Christ by God when he died on the cross. Now, you didn't feel that. You didn't experience that. But the scripture tells us it's true, that God placed us in Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, we died. When he was buried, we were buried to our old way of living. And when he was raised, we were raised to walk in newness of life. And he has given us of his Holy Spirit to cause us to be born again to a resurrected life that we can live in the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. But we must learn in experience that we have been freed from the law of sin and also that we have been freed from the law of commandments because through the law, no one can become righteous. Now, let me just pause here and say that this is where a lot of Christians have difficulty. We don't have a problem understanding why keeping the law cannot get us to heaven. We can kind of understand that, that we have sinned, we have this stain in our lives, and we need some remedy for that. But most Christians, after they come to Christ, well, that's what a Christian is, after they come to Christ, most Christians are under the impression that they have been given a new start, that they've had their history wiped away, they have been forgiven, they have been brought back to God, and now they have an opportunity to live their lives for God, kind of starting over. How many times have you heard, you know, you've got a clean slate, you've got a new beginning, you can start over and you can live for God. And many believers do not make the connection that they can no more produce righteousness by keeping the law after they're saved than they could before they were saved. And Paul explains that to us in these chapters. He says the problem is not with the law. The problem is with the mechanism of trying to obey the law out of our own nature or effort. We are helpless to produce righteousness. There is a defect in us that brings us constantly downward into rebellion and sinfulness. And Paul says the remedy is also the cross. Jesus has released us from the power of sin, but we also must be released from the law in order to walk in the Spirit. 
Now, Paul begins this explanation in chapter 7 by giving us an analogy. And, and I encourage you, don't try to make too much of this analogy. In other words, don't, don't go too deeply into trying to make every piece of it fit. Um, because you're going to get frustrated. In fact, I read a number of commentators, and they couldn't figure it out. And then I read one person, and uh, their commentary basically said Paul was kind of nuts, and he never had any good illustrations anyway, and his analogies were bad, and this one falls all apart. And I'm thinking, this is an evangelical writing about Scripture? Wow, that's a little scary. But remember that analogies are not intended to explain every detail of everything. For example, in this one, uh, where he talks about this woman who is married to a man, and it says if she lives with another man while she's married, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning that marriage covenant, and she's free to marry someone else. Well, who is the Christian in that analogy? Is it the woman? Well, the problem with that is the woman never dies. She, she lives right through the whole thing. Well, is the Christian, and, and that would make the law the man. But you see, the law didn't die either. The law is very much alive. So is the Christian the guy? Well, we died, but then what about this woman that's free to marry? What's the point of all of that? Paul's not trying to take us into all the minutia of this analogy. He's making the point that death, changes everything. <laughs> that before we were alive in the old nature and we were under the covenant of the law and we were failing and we desperately needed help. And then we died in Jesus Christ. And we died with reference to all of that old system. It was removed from its authority in our lives. And we were raised up in Jesus Christ as free men and women. Free to be married to another. And who is that other? None other than the resurrected Jesus Christ. We are free now to be bound to Him in a new relationship. Not under a religious set of rules and regulations, but in a relationship guided and directed by the life-giving Holy Spirit who has come to live in us. Notice what Paul says, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives, verse 1. And then he gives this analogy, but in verse 4 he says, Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law, through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. We need to recognize, if we're going to really learn to walk in the Spirit, we need to recognize that we are dead with respect to the law, <clears throat> and that the law no longer has jurisdiction over us. Verse 1, it has jurisdiction as long as we live, but we have been released from the law in order that we might be married to the resurrected Jesus Christ. 
The law no longer has jurisdiction over us. You say, wait a minute, what are you telling me? That the law has no purpose in my life? Well, not exactly. The law does have a purpose in Scripture. And when we read the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, we find that the law has two main objectives. The first point of the law is to reveal the character of God. When God gave the law to Moses in the wilderness on Mount Sinai, it was a revelation of who he was. The first four commandments of the ten all refer to God and our relationship to him. The Lord your God is a holy God. The Lord your God is the only God. Don't make idols. Don't worship other gods. The Lord your God is a jealous God. He is a holy God. He is the only God. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy and, 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 and worship the Lord. And then the other six commandments that were intended to govern our relationships with each other were commandments that revealed the, the moral character of God. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. And, and all of these things. They tell us about the nature of God who is not a liar and he's not a thief, and he's a covenant-keeping God. He is a faithful God. He isn't a coveting God. These, these are the attributes of his character. The law reveals to us the character of God. So, those of us who are Gentile believers like to separate the law into three parts. Do you know what those three parts are? We like to talk about the moral law. Uh, revealed in the Ten Commandments predominantly. And then we talk about the liturgical or Levitical law, or the law of worship practice in the Old Testament, the, the, the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and all the things that have to do with worship. We call that the liturgical law. And then there is the, the dietary laws, the laws governing uh, food and maybe hygiene and those kinds of things. And, and we have a tendency to want to take the law and divide it into those three parts. The Jews never would have done that. The Jews never separated the law into three components. The law is the law. And it reveals the character of God in all of his attributes. Have, have you ever studied Numbers and Leviticus and read all those weird and strange rules and said, why in the world? You know, some of them you can understand, you know, that they have to do with cleanliness and dead bodies and what to eat and those kinds of, and you, you can kind of look at that and say, well, that makes sense, but some of them are like, man, that's weird. What on earth did God have in mind there? And you know, part of what God had in mind was making his people strange. Yeah. He wanted the, the Israelites to be a peculiar people. Weird. I mean, he wanted the rest of the world to look at them and say, man, you guys are just strange. Look at the things that you do. Um, you know, you can, you can go over to the north side of Chicago today and you'll find homes that have two kitchens. Two complete kitchens with two complete sets of utensils and everything. 
And, and some people just kind of scratch their head and say, that's a little strange. But if you understand Jewish culture, one of those kitchens is absolutely kosher and is set aside for special times, and, and the other kitchen is for, for regular everyday kind of use. And there are certain ways to eat and certain ways to do things. Part of God's intention was to make them a peculiar people. What does that tell us about God? It tells us that he is a transcendent God. He is not like we are. He is wholly other. He is completely different. He is a God that we must come to in reverence and awe because he doesn't think the way we think. And he doesn't act the way we act. He wanted his people to be morally clean. He wanted them to be healthy. He said, if you follow these rules I'm giving you about eating and hygiene, I'm not going to put any of the diseases on you that are on the other nations. And he wanted them to be peculiar, to stand out, to be different, that people would look at them and say, wow, you're, you're morally solid people, you're, you're wealthy people, you're healthy people, you're wonderful people, you're strange people, but... You must have something going for you. You know, there's, there's something good here. And he wanted the world to say, I want to be a part of that unusual group of people upon whose lives God's blessing rests. He also wants us to be a peculiar people, by the way. You read 1 Peter and he makes it plain that God's intention is that we be different, that we look different, that we act different, that we have uh, different values and different goals, and, and, and we are to represent that transcendent nature of God as well. So not every single rule that God gave was, was in, in the sense intended for hygiene or, or something. Some of it was just to say, I want you to be different because I am a different kind of God than anyone else has. And I want people to recognize that in you. The whole counsel of God throughout the Scripture serves also as a moral compass. And friends, as I'm preaching and teaching on being free from the law, I want you to understand that I am not talking about living profligate lives of libertine behavior where you can go and do whatever you please. I'm talking about living a life in the Spirit. And when you're living in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit is guiding your life, you know what it's going to do? It's going to look like Scripture. And if you're reading your Bible and you find that some behavior of yours doesn't fit what's here, friends, you need to go back to God with that and say, God, what about this thing? You need to, you need to work on this in my life because I'm not measuring up. I'm not, I'm not adding up here. The scripture serves as that moral compass, that, that acid test. The Corinthians got way off base with this. In fact, most of the letters in the New Testament were written to correct churches that had gone kind of off the wire in, this, uh, in the realm of the Spirit. Because, you know, it takes some understanding and growth to learn how to walk in the Spirit consistently. And sometimes when you think the Spirit is leading you, you know, it's, it's indigestion or something else, it's, it's a bad dream. 
And some people find themselves being led of the Spirit in some very odd ways. Take the Corinthians, for example. They came to communion and got drunk. You know what the Scripture teaches that people who are led of the Spirit don't get drunk? It's very plain. If you're led of the Spirit of God, do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. But people at Corinth were coming to church on communion for communion, and they were bringing their own bottles, and they were getting drunk. And not only that, they weren't sharing it. That was, you know, that's the pathetic thing. They were getting drunk by themselves. They weren't letting anybody else, if, they, if you didn't have enough money to bring a bottle, you didn't get any. They weren't sharing their food. Paul says, man, not only are you drunk, you're selfish. The Spirit doesn't lead you like that. You're not going to be drunk and you're not going to be selfish if you're being led of the Spirit. But a lot of the New Testament letters are written for people who are off the wire. You know, thinking, well, we're, we're doing well here. But they're off the wire. And there's corrective measures. So the law serves as that moral compass that when we read the print, we are reminded of the character of God and how the Holy Spirit is shaping and molding us into that character. So the law tells us about the nature and the character of God. The other purpose of the law is very important. Paul says this in verse 7, What shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would never have come to know sin except through the law. The law is what makes us aware of our sinful condition. It is the law, Paul says in Galatians 3, that is the schoolmaster that points us to Christ. Because when the law says in Paul's testimony, thou shalt not covet, he said all of a sudden I found I wanted everything I didn't have. And I never would have known that I was a sinner if the law had not said thou shalt not covet. Why did Paul pick that illustration, by the way? What do you think? I think he picked it because it was the one he had trouble with. I think that's the one where God nailed him. You know, each one of you has a weakness in your life. And, and we don't all have exactly the same weaknesses. We all have different weaknesses. Some people are blessed with all the weaknesses. But, but some of you have particular weaknesses. And you're, you're drawn to misbehavior in specific ways. And it's the law of God that awakens you to the problem. When the Holy Spirit begins to deal with you and brings you under conviction... You know, if you're a kleptomaniac and you can't leave things alone, you're taking everything you get a chance to take, and all of a sudden you hear God say to you through the Scriptures, Thou shalt not steal. And that becomes your spiritual waterloo, where you meet God at the point of your failure. Because you're a thief, and God's dealing with you. But Paul's testimony is very interesting. In the Philippians, he said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I was a Pharisee to the nth degree. And as touching the law, uh, righteousness by the law, he said, I, I, I was blameless. Nobody could find fault with me. I didn't lie. I didn't steal. I didn't commit adultery. Uh, I, I didn't bear false witness. I didn't do these other things. I served God in every, in every specific way. But you know what's the truth about coveting? If you're really good at it, no one knows it. 
No one knows what's going on between those beady little eyes of yours. And between your ears. You know, you got this stuff going on in there. And, and Paul says, why do you think he did everything he did? He wanted to be number one. He wanted to be the head teacher. He wanted to be the most outstanding man in Judaism. He coveted the prize of being on top of the pile. He wanted to rise to supremacy. And he worked hard to get there. That's why his testimony in Philippians 3 says, when I came face to face with Jesus Christ, I trashed all of that stuff. It's just a pile of garbage as far as I'm concerned. That I might have the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. But he coveted. He coveted power. He coveted prestige. He coveted position. He wanted to be number one. And that was a sin that no one could see until the law said, Thou shalt not covet. And Paul was dealt with by the Spirit of God there. And God will, has dealt with all of us in different ways. And if you don't know Him yet, He will deal with you at some point of weakness in your life where you will come face to face with Jesus Christ in the reality that you are a sinner and you need a Savior. And Paul said, the law did that for me. He said, I am thankful for the law because it pointed out my need. And when, when the Lord Jesus Christ met him on that road to Damascus and Paul's eyes were open, he began to see a lot of things. And one of the things that he saw was he was running hard in the wrong direction because he was being driven by covetousness. The law serves to bring us to Christ. But nonetheless, as beneficial as the law is, there is a problem. And in this chapter, Paul begins to get down to the, to the nitty-gritty and he says, the problem with the law is not the law. The problem is my flesh. He says, my human nature, my carnal nature, is not able to keep the law. In fact, look with me in verses 4 through 6 for a moment. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. There's a study guide question I hope you'll do this week. I know with Thanksgiving and everything, not every uh, small group is going to be meeting. But there's a study guide question that suggests that you compare this passage with John 15:4, the passage on the vine, and also in Colossians chapter 1, verses 6 through uh, 10 or 12, I believe. And if you look in those passages, you see what the Scripture says about bearing fruit. And the John 4 passage is very fascinating. It says, you do not have the power to produce fruit. You don't have that ability. But when you're made alive to God and Jesus Christ, then you can bear fruit. Then you can be fruitful. But it's not fruit that comes out of you. It's fruit that is produced by the Holy Spirit. Why? For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Isn't that amazing? 
When we try to attain righteousness by law-keeping, our sinful passions are aroused, and it actually results in death. It leads us to a dead end where there is no life, and we're just going through motions. But he says, now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, and not in oldness of the letter. What was religion before Jesus? Let's go to the temple, bring the sacrifices, keep the rules, read the law, memorize the scripture, teach your kids, wear stuff hanging off your hat with little scriptures tied around them, sew things into your robes, remind yourself at every turn who you are and what you are, and really work hard at it. That was religion. And those who were really good at it became very proud of their success. And those who were not very good at it became very distressed. But whatever it was, it did not produce Christ-like character. The law was never intended to produce Christ-like character. It was intended to point out that we can't do it. And friends, if you're a child of God, born again by His Spirit, and you try today to be a good Christian by keeping the law, you're going to fail just as miserably. Because you can't do it, you can't do it any more today than you could before you knew Jesus Christ. I want to spend the rest of my time explaining the dangers of legalism after becoming a Christian. And the first thing I want to say about that is that any and all laws, rules, regulations, principles, and guidelines, including biblical law in the Old and New Testaments, can form the basis of legalism. What do I mean by that? First of all, do you know that there's law in the New Testament? Sure there is. For example, Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, Do not let any idle word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good and needful for the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, when you read a sentence that starts out with do not, <laughs> that's a law. Do not set your mind on things that are on the earth, but set your mind on things above where Christ is. That's a law. The New Testament is full of law. It is full of do's and do nots, just as the Old Testament is full of do's and do nots. It's not that the Bible doesn't contain law, the Bible's full of law. The point is, how do you go about allowing that to be reproduced in your life? So there's law in both Testaments, and both Testaments can become a basis for legalism. The other problem is we add laws to the Scripture. That we define spirituality by. This is, this is pretty amazing stuff. You know, the Jews added laws. They took the laws about the Sabbath and they added 
many more. They had over 600 laws governing the Sabbath day. They had added a bunch of them. You know, you couldn't spit in the dirt on the path on the Sabbath. You had to spit on a rock. Why? Because, well, if you spit in the dirt, your spittle mixed with the dust made mud. Mud was an ingredient in mortar. Mortar was used to lay bricks. Bricks was used for labor. You're working. So if you spit, pick a rock on the Sabbath. You can spit in the path any other day of the week, but pick a rock on the Sabbath. Jesus says you, you strain at these things. You strain at gnats and you swallow camels whole. He says, you, you, you're, you're all involved about these picky little details, and you're missing the whole point. What do you do if you've got a cold and you cough on the Sabbath, and, and, and something flies out and lands in the mud? You know? Well, shame on you. You broke the law. You can't be spiritual. And so... This poor guy is lying in the dust, beaten up and bleeding and left for dead, and the Pharisees and the scribes avoid him at all costs because they don't want to contaminate themselves on the way to the temple. But it's the half-breed, outcast Samaritan that stops and loves this guy and bandages him up and touches this bloody, beaten-up body and puts him on his own mount, and takes him to a place where he can get well, and pays for the cost of it because the guy's wallet was stolen. And Jesus looks at right at those self-righteous Pharisees and says, that guy is the spiritual man. And they hated him for it. Because they were straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Friends, the church does the same thing. Don't pick on the Jews. We're just as bad. We come up with all kind of regulations. I was reading something the other day, and it just astounded me. You know, in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, we have rules. Rules that are, that are outside the Bible. Rules that aren't in, are not in the Scripture. And I read this statement, and, and I don't know if the people that wrote this comprehend what, what was being said, but here was the statement. We believe that the Bible teaches thus and so. But we have chosen to live by a higher standard, so we enforce this for our official workers and for church leaders. Does anybody hear what we've said? Jesus... And the whole Bible is this way, but we've picked a higher standard. How do you get higher than the Bible and Jesus? How do you do that? I don't know how you do that. Do we know how arrogant we sound when we say something like that? We've picked a higher standard than the Scriptures? How do you get there? We are not technically, as Christian Missionary Alliance people, a part of the holiness movement. We just happened to arise about the same time, and we kind of got tagged that way because of the emphasis on the deeper life. But, let me hasten to say that the holiness movement is full of denominations that have added to the Scriptures. 
just like the Pharisees. People cannot be trusted to be led by the Spirit, so we need to define spirituality for them. Let's add some rules. You know? And we're going to put these things down, and that's going to help people be more spiritual. We're going to tell them what good Christians do. How can you do that? How do you know? You're always going to get your own culture and your own preferences and your own mindset mixed into that. When I was a new Christian, I was introduced to the Navigators. And I've got to tell you something about myself. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm an academic at heart. Because I all, to me, the year begins in September. It does not begin in January. It begins in September. It begins in September when you go to school and you get those new books. <sighs> That's life, man. New books, fresh ink on the page. New pencils, new pens. I love pens and pencils. I, I just think they're grand. I, I have a pen in my pocket that, that is like from the 50s. I, you know, it's a fountain pen that I restored. I didn't plan to do this, but just happened to have it with me. It's kind of cool. It's got this snorkel thing that comes out. Can you see that? And you dip it in the ink, and, and it sucks up the ink. I'm going to get ink all over myself in a minute here. It sucks up the ink, and wow, is that cool. I just love pens and pencils. I like things about learning and, and all that kind of stuff. Where was I going with this? <laughs> so anyway, the navigators. So, so I'm into books, and I'm into things like this, and, and, and I love notebooks and, and cool things. And somebody said, you know, the way to really grow in Christ is navigators have the topical memory system, so you need to do that. You need to, you need to buy these little boxes of memory cards, and you get this cool little wallet that you can put them in. And, and you can carry it around with you, and you memorize two verses a week, and that'll help you grow in Christ. And I thought, wow, I like that. So I bought the topical memory system, but you know what? I'm going to be a, a really dedicated Christian. So two verses a week is just what the average does. I'm going to do four a week. And then somebody told me that uh, you could read through the whole Bible if you read four chapters a day. And so I, I decided I was going to read four chapters in the Bible a day. And that was going to help me grow in Christ. And then I read Watchman Nee, and I found out he read through the New Testament every month. And I thought, well, I'll add that, because you know re I can read through the Bible like ordinary people in a year, but if I add reading through the New Testament in a month to that, just think, I'll get that 12 times a year on top of my whole year of the Bible. And now i got my four verses and I started, and I even bought the blank card so I could write my own memory verses on there and put those. I'm not kidding you. And then, and then I was told, you need to journal. So I, so I have my quiet time, I go to journal and write down everything I'm learning and questioning and wondering. And then somebody said, you need to keep a prayer list. And as God lays people in your heart, you need to add this to your prayer list. And when you pray, you need to go through adoration and confession and thanksgiving you know, and, and supplication, and you need, to, you need to have those elements in your prayer time. So my quiet time by this time, I'm in college by this time, and my quiet time is about two and a half to three hours just to get through the stuff. I've now got this prayer list, it's like three pages long, single-spaced of columns of names. You ever tried praying through that meaningfully? 
Lord, bless John, bless Susie, bless Tim, bless Martha, bless all, all those folks in Africa, bless them. And did you ever wonder what you're doing? Did you pray that way and wonder what you're doing? What, what do we mean? You know, God bless Martha and Sue and Jim and John and, and all the people serving in Africa and help all the people that are needy and, and bless the ones that, that, are, that are hungry and take care of them. Is that praying? I didn't even have time to say that much. By the time my list got to three pages, it took an hour and a half just to say all their names in any kind of meaningful way. And I was going to the chapel at 5 o'clock in the morning and, 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 and kneeling down in the chapel. No one else was there. That should have told me something. But I'm at the chapel at school at 5 o'clock in the morning and I'm spending like two, two and a half hours in a quiet time. And I got wore out. This got to be old. And if I didn't pray through my list, you know what I felt? Guilt. Guilty. How can you not pray for those people? How about if I pray for them once a week, Lord? Oh, you can't pray for them just once a week. What if they need prayer every day? You're not loving them very much. Who do you think was telling me that? Where was that coming from? I can tell you now where it was not coming from. It was not coming from God. It was coming from a taskmaster whose name was Satan, who had decided that if he couldn't kill me with sin, he would kill me with righteousness. He would use the law to wreck my life so that I would become frustrated and discouraged and feel guilty and beat up. Friends, it doesn't matter what law you pick. You can pick the Navigators. You can pick the Christian and Missionary Alliance rules and regulations. You can be a Roman Catholic and, and get the big guilt all the time. You can pick anything you want. You can go be a Jew. You can pick any law you want. You can pick the Old Testament or the New Testament. If you try to have a relationship with God and become godly by keeping rules you are going to end in failure every single time because you have a problem, and that problem is your flesh. It doesn't work consistently. It won't go in that direction. And the consequence of legalism is, it, it may not be with the rule itself. Is there anything wrong with memorizing Scripture? No, you ought to memorize Scripture. Is there anything wrong with reading Scripture? Of course not. You ought to read the Bible. Should you pray? Of course you should pray. Paul says pray without ceasing. And everything by prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God. And peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know how I know that? I memorized it. That's how I know that. That's why I can quote it to you. I memorized it. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes your means... It will defeat you. It's legalism in every form. What is Paul's point? The problem is not that the law is bad. The problem is that my flesh is bad. And I told you last week, there are three consequences of legalism. And it will always turn out this way. And part of it depends on your temperament. 
And, and someone said to me, does everyone have just one temperament? No, we're usually a mixture of all of them, but you tend to le lean in one direction more than another. If you happen to be one of those people who are, who are, are gifted in the area of discipline and dotting I's and crossing T's, Please don't take this personally, okay? I'm just, uh, but but you, you will probably enjoy accounting as a profession. You will enjoy being, a, you know, a, a, an enforcer of rules and regulations. You will like probably human resources or a job with the government or some place where you're counting things and controlling things and managing things because that's your nature. I'm glad we have those people. We need people like that. Notice I'm talking about we need people like that because I am not one of those people. That's not my gift, and it's not my weakness either. Dis no one can ever accuse me of having a strength or weakness in discipline. I, I just don't have any. But if you're that kind of a person, you're going to be drawn to the rules and regulations. You're going to love them. And if you're successful at the ones that, that really appeal to you, you're going to feel good about keeping them. And when you're done, you're going to be full of spiritual pride. And like those Pharisees who were good at it, Jesus said, you search the whole world over to make one convert. And when you get a hold of them, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You know, that's a very sobering comment. Do we search the world over to make converts like us? And when we make them, we turn them into spiritual micromanagers who dot every I and cross every T and have no spiritual vitality. Walking with Jesus to them is keeping the rules. And they walk right by those poor, beat up, robbed, and left for dead people laying on the street, hurrying off to their next witnessing class. Because they don't get it. They're Pharisees. Spiritual pride and Phariseeism. Most believers, however, don't end up in that camp. Many do, but most believers end up in camp number two. Discouraged and defeated. Frustrated and failure. They look at their lives and they say, I try all the time and I fail consistently. They're right with Paul in the rest of this chapter. We won't get there today, that'll be next week. But they're right there with Paul. The harder I try, the worse I get. The things I hate, I do all the time. The things I want to try to do all the time, I can never do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And their whole Christian life is lived in sadness. You know, it's hard to witness like that. Come to Jesus. Come to church with me and be miserable. I'd like you to be as bored and unhappy as I am. I'd like you to feel guilty every day about all the things you don't do. I'd like you to have a life of defeat and frustration. Won't you come to Jesus? Who wants that? You know? You know what the Pharisees, you know what the religious people complained about Jesus? He's partying with the sinners. Now, read that in context. Okay? He's not getting drunk. He's not out there hitting on all the women. 
But he's in the midst of publicans and sinners in a way that without compromising his holiness, they're drawn to him. Religious people can't stand him. But they're drawn to him. I wish you could have seen his face at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when he turned the water into wine. I heard somebody say one time, some people are so spiritually minded, they think he should have turned the original wine into water. But the couple ran out of wine, so he turned the water into wine. I think he was having a grand time. I think when they went back and said, wow, where did you get this stuff? Jesus was just off to the side with a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face saying, <laughs> isn't this fun? They had encountered God in a fantastic way. The first miracle on record is turning water into wine at a wedding. What more can you say about the life of Jesus? That's incredible. But I guarantee you he was never drunk. And I guarantee you, he was never immoral. And I guarantee you, he was never lustful. And I guarantee you, he never lied. And he didn't have to cover his trail. And he didn't have to remember what he said the next day. Because he was walking in the Spirit. But his life was not one of depression and frustration. It was a winsome life that drew sinners to him. The third option is, if you can't keep the rules and you get tired of being depressed, some people just throw it all over and say, I'm just going to go live. I can't do this. I'm just going to go live. Forget the law. Forget righteousness. I'm just going to be what I want to be. And I'm, hope, I'm hoping the doctrine of eternal security is right, because I'd like to go to heaven when I die, but you know what? In the meanwhile, I'm just out for me. I can't stand this stuff. That's what happens to people that try to get forced into some religious mold of law-keeping. If they don't turn into Pharisees and they don't get depressed, they quit. And they go back to fun. Jesus is fun, but in a vastly different way. The law operates in the realm of the flesh, Paul says, and it always results in death. The Holy Spirit, in newness of the Spirit and of life, the Holy Spirit operates within us to produce Christ-likeness from within, and it always results in life and fruit-bearing. It's always productive in a positive way. Law-keeping says, I will do this thing for God. Spirit-filled living says, God will do this thing in and through me as I wait on him. Law-keeping attempts to prescribe the same routine for everyone. You know, it's amazing. We get all these ideas of discipleship. We say, I know how to make people holy. I'm going I'm to come up with a plan, and I'm going to make them holy. I'm going to write this book, and I'm going to tell them the steps to becoming a mature Christian. I can remember... Back in the late 60s, early 70s, when revival broke out and people were getting saved. And I don't know if you recall those days, but those were days when skirts were a lot shorter than my coat is. You know, and girls were running around in ultra minis. 
And they would get saved and come to church. And I could hear some of the people saying, if they knew Jesus, they'd let their hymns down. You know what? These were people that the number one problem in their life was heroin addiction. They were strung out on acid and cocaine and heroin. And the Holy Spirit wasn't talking to them about hymn length. He was talking to them about being free from heroin addiction and liberating them from the bondage of drugs. His number one concern was not how long their skirt was. And I don't know if the people sitting in the pews ever thought, maybe you've got a problem. You know, if you look at a young lady who's just been saved and delivered from acid and heroin, and all you can think about is how short her skirt is, maybe you're the one that needs some Holy Spirit attention, because where is your head? You know, it's easy to point fingers and say, look at that, instead of saying, Oh, maybe I have a lust problem that needs to be fixed. See, we, we want to prescribe, like, here's, how you, here's how you go. Here's the cookie cutter method to become spiritual. You can't do that because the Holy Spirit is going to begin with every person wherever they are. One of the first things God dealt with me about was my mouth. He doesn't deal with everybody about that. You know, I still hear Christians use what I consider to be poor language. I, I wouldn't use it, but they do, and I'm not their judge. But the first thing God dealt with me about within weeks of turning my life over to him is he says, you know, we've got to work on your mouth. Because every other word coming out of it was profane, and I had kind of developed that habit. And, and the Holy Spirit just took me to task, and he dealt with that, and he cleaned that up. And I mean, he took it away. He fixed it. But he, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't struggling with heroin. And so he started at a different place in me. He'll start in a different place with you. We cannot describe how everyone ought to grow up in Christ. <clears throat> That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But if a person is genuinely born again, I'll tell you this, God is at work in their life. There will be transformation. They will change in time. And they may not change the way you think they ought to change. They may not fit your mold. But they will be consistent with the Scripture because if you're Spirit-led, you will be consistent with Scripture. You may not walk according to the higher standard. But you will begin to look like Jesus. He will begin to come through your life. Friends, law-keeping leads to failure. It's the old way. The new way is the Holy Spirit living his life in me, reproducing through me the life of Jesus Christ as I abide in the vine. Will he lead me to read the Bible? Yep. Will he lead me to pray? Yep. Will he lead me to memorize Scripture? Yep. Will he lead me... To tell the truth, yes. Will he lead me out of realms of lust and, and, and immorality? Yes. Will he take me into places 
of love and compassion and graciousness and kindness and a gentle spirit. And Yes, because that's who Jesus is. And that's where the Holy Spirit will take me. And as he leads you to read the book, and your life kind of becomes examined by the book, and you're reading this, and you see, oh, I'm not living like that. And the Holy Spirit is kind of putting a spotlight on it. And, and you say to him, Lord, I see that this is your character. Would you please develop that in me? I'm going to trust you for it. I'm not going to try to fix it, because I can't. But I'm going to trust you to do this for me. Will you do this for me? And God has an amazing way of doing that. I wish I could tell you more, but I'll save it for next week. Father, thank you for your love and for your word. Minister to our hearts from it. Teach us how to walk by the Spirit. Lord, don't let us swallow camels while we're sitting around straining gnats. Teach us in the Spirit to be like Jesus. I ask it in his precious name and for his glory. Amen.